Acts is going to continue in our sermon series, Jesus, Architect of My Personality, by talking about the hot-button topic of humility. What would you say is the most dangerous sin of all? What sin is there that leads to more self-deception, more bad behavior than any other? How would you answer that? You know, I think you could make a pretty good case that the most devastating sin of all is pride. Throughout the centuries, the best theologians in Christianity have always said that pride is at the root of all other sins. And someone has talked about four major different categories of pride. As I walk through these, I want you to think with me about how pride can rear its ugly head in our lives. The first major kind of pride is race pride. Some people look down on other races. They feel superior because they're white or black or Asian or Latino or Jewish or Gentile. And they think that their particular ethnicity is superior to all the others. Now, I believe that we've made a lot of progress in this area in our country over the last 70 years, but my, my, we have so much further to go. And especially as Christians, we need to understand the truth described in Galatians 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female when we are in Christ Jesus, because we're all one in him. One of the goals that Jesus came to accomplish is to begin to break down those walls of partition that separate us thinking that our ethnicity is better, our race is better, our gender is superior. No, we're all, we're all one. We're, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Second, not only race pride, but then there is face pride, face pride. Some people look down on others' appearance. They feel superior to those who may be overweight or who dress poorly. An older person dressed in classic clothes uh, may look down on a younger person who wears earrings and baggy jeans or over a, a young, on a young woman who has nose rings and some of the latest fashion. Or teenagers may ridicule older people who are dressed in classic suit and tie. You see, as Christians, we should understand that it's not the outward appearance that makes a person. Oh, that may matter if you're going for a job interview, to be sure. You do need to, quote, dress for success, and our first impression is often powerful. But we need to understand that people look on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. There's race pride, there's face pride, and then there's place pride. Some have a condescending spirit because they live in a certain place, a section of the city, 
maybe their family is well known. Perhaps they have political clout and they want to flaunt their status in the community. Are you the business owner or do you simply work on the assembly line? Do you live in a nice subdivision or a trailer park? Are you a member of that posh country club or the Moose Lodge? Do you frequent the ballet and the symphony or do you go to stock car races? <laughs> we have this sense of place pride. Are you an important person with impressive connections? Several years ago, uh, a man in the military had received a promotion. He was being given a much nicer office, and he was pretty proud of that. And He was now a, a colonel, and he saw a lowly private approaching his office with a toolbox. And so wanting to seem really important in his new role, he quickly picked up the telephone that he saw sitting on his desk, and he he said, oh, yes, General Schwarzkopf, sir, I'm so happy to talk about this with you. Thanks for seeking me out on it. Oh, doing lunch would be great, sir. Yes, we can talk it over then, but I want you to know that you have my full support. He hung up the phone and said to the lowly private, and what can I help you today with, private? And the young man said, sir, I'm here to hook up your telephone. <laughs> Place pride can get us in trouble when we're proud of our status. Between her sophomore and junior year, a young woman was waitressing in a rather seedy restaurant. And one day she served a well-dressed young couple. And uh, the man was rather pompous in his attitude. He said, have you ever thought about going to college? And she said, well, actually, sir, I, I am in college. And then he said, well, I went to Harvard. And he looked around and said condescendingly, I would never work in a place like this. She said, well, I go to Vassar and I would never eat in a place like this. <laughs> you see, we've got to understand that in Christ, there are no special titles we're all just brother and sister there's no cheap seats the greatest among you will be the servant of all jesus said we need to get rid of our race pride and our face pride and our place pride but there's one other major category of pride i'll mention and i suppose that for today's message this would be the most relevant of all and that's what you could call grace pride the truth is, some people are rather proud of their religion. This passage today speaks of those who are confident of their own righteousness. And they may be condescending, arrogant toward others that they perceive as morally inferior to them. Now, I grew up in a Baptist tradition as a kid. And I want to confess to you that I believe the little tradition, the tradition I grew up in as a Baptist, we had some grace pride. We thought we were a little closer to God than most people. I literally heard 
statements like this on a fairly consistent basis. Well, I'm not sure I've ever met a Presbyterian or Methodist that's really saved. And I would think as a young teenager, well, are they all going to hell? I mean, really? Or maybe you grew up as a Catholic and perhaps you heard in your, in your family environment or in the church, you heard, now don't go over there to that Protestant church. That'll only get you in trouble. You know, all they do is handle snakes and roll around in the aisle. And it's frequent. It's actually common to have this sense of grace pride. Like, wow, we're really superior. James and John in the scriptures wanted to call down fire from heaven on an unsuspecting Samaritan village because they had not been super receptive of Jesus. And they believed a bit differently. Well, likewise, there's some today who want to destroy those who don't believe exactly as they do. So what about it? Do you see any of these categories of pride in your own life or your friends? Race pride, face pride, place pride, or grace pride? Well, this weekend, we continue in our study of Jesus architect of my personality. And today, we want to focus on humility. It's really the opposite of pride. Humility is seeing yourself in a sober way, in an accurate way, the way God sees you. Not more lowly than you ought to think of yourself, but not more highly. To see yourself in a sober fashion, accurate in a sane way. And the Bible always extols this personal quality called humility. It affects the way we relate to others and the way we relate to God. Now, I just want to warn you today, before we dive into this text, this passage is like a good old holy kick in the face for people who are prone to grace pride. If you're here today, whoever you are, young, old, anywhere in between, and you believe, you know, I'm a pretty good person, you better watch out. Because today's passage is a shocker. I mean, it is like a holy kick in the teeth. This parable paves the way for the Apostle Paul to come later, and we have his letters, some of them in our New Testament, and give us the doctrine of justification by grace through faith alone. In many ways, today's story gets at the very heart of true religion. You see, true religion, if you've ever wondered what that is, it means a relationship of genuine, humble dependence on God the Father. That's true religion. Not thinking you can pull yourself up by your own bootstraps or make yourself acceptable to God. True religion realizes humbly that I am dependent on God for every good thing I have. It's not based on what we can do for him, but solely on what he's done for us. So let's dive into this story, unpack it, and then see what conclusions we can draw. Luke 18, beginning in verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now let's pause there. The Pharisees were extremely religious people. 
they were the best of the best. If being religious has virtue, they were the most virtuous of all. But the truth is, they were religious bigots. They were filled with pride. They're, they separated themselves from others that they thought inferior. They meticulously kept the law. And one of their ceremonies was they would ceremonially wash themselves before they ate. Take water, pour it over their fingertips, let it run down their forearms to their elbows and drip off. Then they would turn their arms upside down, pour water on their elbow, let it run the other way down and drip off their fingertips. Ceremonially, they were washing themselves clean of any demons that they may have contacted while they were in the marketplace. William Barclay, the English commentator, tells of a Pharisee who was in prison once and almost died of dehydration because he was taking the water that they were giving him for his water ration and using it in the ceremonial cleaning, cleansing instead of drinking it. Now, though this Pharisee came to the temple, he didn't come to pray to God. He was all wrapped up in himself. He prayed about himself, the text says. He didn't pray for others. He didn't pray for mercy for himself. He prayed about himself. He couldn't wait to tell God how good he was and how he was superior to other people. Verse 11 says, the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Those lowdowns out there, you know, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now, one thing I know about self-righteous people is they usually define themselves by what they don't do. Have you ever noticed this? There's a list of don'ts. I don't smoke, drink, or chew, or run with girls who do is usually the way it goes. And whatever's on their list, I don't go to R-rated movies, I don't wear shorts, I don't cut my hair this way, I don't do this, I don't do that. And because I don't do these things, the thought is I'm morally superior to those who do. Verse 12, he goes on, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. By the way, fasting and tithing are wonderful practices. Jesus commends both of them. If you don't believe that, read Luke eleven forty two. 42, read Matthew 23, 23. In both of those passages, he robustly commends the practice of tithing. He says, as you tithe, though, don't forget other issues that are even more grand and important than that. And Jesus certainly commends fasting. He says, when you fast, don't make a big deal of it to be seen by other people. But that's precisely the problem with the Pharisees. While God had commanded them only to fast one day of the year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the Pharisees had decided, we're going to fast two days a week from dawn till dusk. Now, you can pig out after dusk. But between the hours of dawn and dusk, they fasted on Mondays and Thursdays. And this guy is proud of that. He sees himself as superior to others because of the way he keeps these religious laws. But notice the difference in the tax collector. Verse 13. 
but the tax collector stood at a distance. Now, what that means is he didn't even feel himself worthy to approach the altar area, the central area of the temple, which was thought as a more holy place. He didn't feel himself worthy, so he stood at a distance, believing, I don't even deserve to be able to approach that. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast. That's a sign of anguish over his own brokenness and sinfulness, beating his breast. That's what that means. And he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, think for a moment about the contrast between these two people. What a different attitude. The Pharisee was proud, the tax collector humble. And their prayer was very different. The Pharisee said, God, I'm so good. The tax collector said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. In fact, in the Greek text, it's even more explicit. It has what's called a definite article. Technically, can be translated, be merciful to me, the sinner. He's kind of implying, I'm the worst of all. I don't deserve to be here. And indeed, as you've probably heard over and over again, if you've listened to many sermons on this, tax collectors in that culture were known to be crooked. The system was stacked that way. They were given a quota by the Roman government. You need to collect this many taxes. But the system was rife for corruption because anything they collected over and above the quota was theirs to pocket. That's why Tacitus, the ancient historian, once commented that he saw a monument to an honest tax collector. That's how rare honest ones were. They actually gave a monument to this guy who happened to be honest. Their attitude and prayers were so different, but also their response from God was very different. Verse 14, I tell you, Jesus says here, that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus says, the way up is down. He says, the first step in really coming to God is to be poor in spirit, to be needy and know it, to say, God, I am not good. I am a sinner. I need your forgiveness. Have you ever done that? Have you ever in your life came to that point of realization? You see, here's why I'm so concerned. Because if you're a super religious person, maybe you've kind of been around the church all your life pretty much. You're the one I fear for the most. And I'm saying that with compassion. Because you see, we think ourselves pretty good people when we've been around the church. But unwittingly, we're more like this Pharisee than we realize. Listen to these words from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, now brothers and sisters, I've applied these things to myself 
and Apollos for your benefit. And these things he's talking about is the fact that we need to be good stewards of whatever God's given us because he's going to judge even our motives. That's the context of this. That's what's come just before this, that one day God is going to judge our very motives so we all need to be very diligent in the way we steward our lives. I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not take pride in one man over against another. And then listen to these amazing words, verse 7. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? Now, these are rhetorical questions he's asking, but the implied response is, Nothing. In other words, Paul is, is giving this question that has an obvious answer. No, everything I have is obviously from God because he's the giver of all good gifts. And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? What a powerful question. I love the true story that's told of the Duke of Wellington and his entourage who visited a small country Anglican church, one communion Sunday. And these humble country people were so happy to have the Duke of Wellington, this dignitary and all of his special entourage, and he sat through the worship service and participated. And when it came time for communion, they had the practice of getting up and walking forward And row by row, they would come as a row, and they would kneel at the communion table to receive communion. And so, when it came their turn, the Duke of Wellington and his entourage arose and went and knelt at the communion table. But to the embarrassment of the pastor and the people, about that time, the door burst open and in staggered the town drunk. He stumbled his way down the aisle and knelt right beside the Duke of Wellington. But an alert usher tapped him on the shoulder and said, you can't be here. Don't you know who that is? You've got to leave. This is the Duke of Wellington. But before he responded, the Duke said, sir, stay where you are, please. There are no Dukes here. And when we come together, brothers and sisters, we need to understand there are no dukes and duchesses. There are no high and mighty. There's only one worthy of our praise, worship, and devotion, and that is Jesus Christ. That's why scripture encourages us, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. What a powerful message. You say, well, Pastor Rex, so if pride is such a problem with God, if it leads to so many problems, if God is looking to build this character trait of humility in my life, how can I do that? So for a few moments, let's turn our attention there and be practical. I'd give you a few suggestions if you really want God to build this trait of humility in your life. First of all, compare yourself more with Jesus and less with others. 
This Pharisee was obviously into the comparison game. I thank you that I'm not like these people. And I want to tell you, we get into a problem when we play the comparison game. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 12, when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. Let me tell you why it's a problem. Because you can always find someone that makes you look pretty good. A salesman was on his way to an appointment and he drove by a newly whitewashed barn out in the countryside. And he thought to himself how spectacularly clean and white that barn looked against the backdrop of the dirty barnyard. But a few days later, he was driving that same road and he noticed the barn again, but this time it looked dingy and dull because the night before, several inches of snow had fallen. And that newly whitewashed barn looked rather dull and drab, even dirty, compared to the purity of this newly driven snow. And I want to tell you, friend, when you compare yourself to the barnyard of this world, you can look pretty good. You can always find people where you say, well, I'm better than her. Well, I'm certainly not a hypocrite like him. Well, I don't think I have as many problems as they do. You're comparing to the wrong thing, friend. You are not called to compare yourself and measure yourself by any other mere mortal. The one you need to be looking at is Jesus. And I want to tell you, when you look at Jesus, there's no place for pride. Because you'll realize that even the best you can muster up is like filthy rags in the sight of God. And you will cry out, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Secondly, I would urge you, no matter who you are with, seek to be consistent. I've noticed something about genuinely humble people. They're kind of the same no matter where they are. But people who are proud tend to want to change depending on who they're with. They, their character kind of is different. They, they put on airs around some people. I heard of a little boy who was playing out in the backyard when a rat ran out from behind the garbage can and he was able to kill the rat. And he was so proud of himself and he picked up that dead rat by the tail and began walking it in the house like a little boy might do. He wanted to show it off to his mom. What he didn't realize is that the local preacher had stopped by to pay his family a visit. And so we went in all excited, holding that rat by the tail. He said, Mom, look what I found. He said, I saw it, and I jumped on it, and I kicked it, and I hit it with a baseball bat. And then he noticed the preacher sitting there. And then he put his baseball cap over his heart and said, and then the Lord called the poor thing home. <laughs> Do you know any people like that who are chameleons? They'll talk a good game in front of the boss, but behind the boss's back, they slander and cut with their words. Around some of their friends who may be unbelievers, 
they have one form of speech, but when they get around church people, their speech changes dramatically. In the church service, in here, in the worship time, they may seem so compassionate and kind, like they'd give you the shirt off their back, they'd do anything for you. But after the service in the parking lot, baby, it's every man for himself, so you better watch out. You get run over out there. I've noticed something about genuinely humble people. They're the real deal. They're the same no matter where they are because they live their values. They understand who they are in light of God. And they humbly live consistent, authentic lives no matter who they're around. Well, there's one final suggestion. If you really want God to build this trait into your life, and I believe this is the most important of all, accept the fact once and for all that we are saved. We are saved, friend. Are you listening to this? Not by our pious deeds, but by God's grace alone. You know why I think Jesus gives this parable? I think he wants it to be a wake-up call to the religious leaders of the day and to us today, any of us who are struggling with pride. And notice, in this story, he picks the two most opposite extremes you could possibly pick. The Pharisee is doing all the right things outwardly, but inside he is reeking with religious pride. And the tax collector, on the other hand, is the guy that everybody would have written off as being beyond redemption. Total extremes. So if you really want to get the holy kick in the face that Jesus intends us to get from this, here's what you need to do. Think right now in your mind. Everybody, just think of this. Who is that person or that type of person that you consider irredeemable do you have a category do you have a person that pops in your head or a type of person that you believe is just beyond the reach of God's grace whoever they are insert them in the story and you begin begin to feel that kick in the face that Jesus intends you know that guy that guy you say oh he could never be saved that guy's beyond hope or that woman where you say you know what she is pure evil i'm telling you do not trust her she is downright evil put that person in the story cuz that's what the tax collector represented to all of his listeners And as soon as you start saying they're beyond the reach of God, you better look out. Because friends, God's grace can reach the unreachable and redeem the irredeemable. And believe it or not, that is the best news you've heard all week. The very person who is so broken and wrecked by sin that we go, there's no way. That's the one that Jesus is going to choose to show us the pathway to justification before God. So let me share this closing word, and I want to be very, very personal now. Are you a good person? Do you believe, you know what, I'm really, really a good person If you believe that, you can never be saved. 
Yeah, you, you heard me right. If you believe you're a really, really good person, I want to tell you, you can never be saved until God breaks that religious spirit of pride that is on you. Until God breaks through that grace pride and you see how needy you really are. So I give you this challenge. If you were to go out onto the streets of the capital region today and ask just any unsuspecting passerby, hey, who goes to heaven? You know what you'd find? If you ask people at random, hey, who gets to go to heaven? You know what you're going to hear? The answer you're going to hear over and over and over again are, well, good people. Good Good people go to heaven because that's the popular belief out there. And you know what I say to that? Baloney. Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. And that's what this parable of Jesus teaches us. Good people don't go to heaven. Good people don't get justified before God. Forgiven people go to heaven. Now, it just so happens that some of them happen to be pretty good. But they're not going to heaven because they're good. They're going to heaven because they're forgiven. And why are they forgiven? Because God brought them to a place one day in their life where they finally humbly admitted, Lord, be merciful to me a sinner. And God was merciful. And he forgave them all of their sins. Is that you? And if it's not, may this be the day that you realize, God, I am a sinner. I need your mercy and forgiveness. May we pray. Father, I thank you for the power of Jesus' words. This parable shocks us. It goes against our instincts. Father, I pray for that person today who has a spirit of pride about their religion. They think they actually are worthy of your forgiveness. They think they're a really good person, and they deserve to go to heaven. Oh, God, would you break through today? And would you show them how needy they really are? May this be a moment when they cry out to you and say, Oh, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. At this time, I'll invite the ushers forward to collect our tithes and offerings. You know, I love that last point that Pastor Rex.